Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church. In Revelation 3 verse 11, Jesus promised the believers in Philadelphia to hold fast so that no one would take their crown. What is it that they are to hold fast to? What is this crown? And who might take their crown? And does this verse only apply to the believers in Philadelphia? Using Scripture with Scripture, we'll answer all these questions in today's study. Here is Pastor Alex. We are still in the letter to Philadelphia. And I know we've been here for some time, but as I mentioned in the introductory comments, there are a lot of layers to this particular letter. I mean, I'm sure there has been layers in other letters that we've covered up to this point. But while we're here Let's continue to unpack some of these layers encompassed in this small book. And the title of our message is Our Promised Crown. The Bible makes many promises for believers and followers of Jesus Christ. And one of those many promises is what our Lord says as a crown. So when we, what we're going to learn today is what that means and how and when that will come to fruition. Because as believers in Jesus Christ, we can use all the encouragement we can get from his word so that if and when our faith is challenged and tested, you know, even if put through trials, his word and his truth that has been implanted into our hearts, including remembering the promises made by our Lord, comes to our mind, and that pulls us through whatever season we may be in life. So with that, what we'll do is we're going to go ahead and continue to read this letter in its totality. And we're just going to be covering one verse today in verse 11. But to get the passage in scripture setting in our mind, let's proceed to read this small letter, verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and you have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it any more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So there we have the words of our Lord recorded by John given to this small church in Philadelphia. And what we're going to cover, as I mentioned, is verse 11. So let us look at verse 11 one more time. So Jesus says here, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. So we're going to break up this verse into three parts. We're going to look at when Jesus says, I am coming quickly. 
You know, there's a lot of confusion around him saying, I am coming quickly. There's a lot of even subjective interpretations. But we're going to look at, to Scripture at what that really means. He also says, hold fast what you have. We'll look at what is he talking about. And then he says, so that no one will take your crown. Who, did they, who do they need to worry about? Who could potentially be taking their crown? And he's warning them not for them to take it. I'll give you a clue. It's in this letter. So let's look at the first part, shall we? I am coming quickly. I am coming, or I, quickly, touch you. Jesus is speaking here. He's saying, I am coming quickly. This is in the future tense. This is prophecy. As we know, the book of Revelation is prophecy. So when Jesus says, I am coming quickly, Jesus is saying, I am going to arrive. He's and it's quickly, meaning it's what it means in our English. It's quickly, it's speedily, it's swiftly. So here's the truth, and this is the news to us. Jesus will personally return to earth. We're all familiar with the ascension account. When Jesus was taken up to heaven in his ascension and clouds came to receive him. And what did the angel tell his disciples? Why are you gazing into the sky? For this same Jesus who ascended will also in like manner descend. The angel right there is telling him he is coming. And to use the words of our Lord, not only is he coming, he is coming quickly, speedily, swiftly. So here's my question to us. What is he coming quickly to do? We learned this last week in the hour of testing. What is he coming quickly to do? To render to each person according to his deeds. When Jesus is coming... This render to each person according to his deeds, this is saved and unsaved. He's not just coming to bring judgment, but he's also coming to bring reward. So when he's coming quickly to render to each person according to his deeds, then to those deeds which align with believing and receiving the gospel and living and working out your salvation in fear and trembling in that way, who by perseverance... And with God's grace and God's help, continue to persevere, the scripture tells us, and Paul's gospel tells us, that we will receive eternal life. But on the flip side, by those who continue to persist in disobedience, who reject the truth, then Jesus will come to render to that person judgment and will be part of that hour of testing that we've covered last week. So Jesus, when he's saying, I'm coming quickly, we have to frame that to render to each person according to his deeds. So with that in mind, if someone says, well, Jesus came at the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Really? Did he appear there? Did he bodily appear in the same way that he was ascended into heaven and received into the clouds? But there are some who hold a view and they'll say, yeah, well, well, it fits my kind of view into the end time things. Yeah, he came in your heart and all that stuff. So we have to frame this coming quickly, and we know that this is even ahead of us. So even though he said it to this church, this small community of believers, that first century, he says, I am coming quickly. Hasn't happened yet. But what does the words of Peter say? Well, there is going to be mockers, and mockers in the Greek, it means those who, uh, it's pretty much false teaching, will be mocking with their false teaching. 
hey, where's the coming of your Lord? Because the world has been going on as long as it's been. It's been 2,000 years, and they'll even ridicule this. I am coming quickly. And what does Peter say? He pretty much says, well, first of all, he hasn't come yet because of his grace, because he desires that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance and receive Christ. It's pretty much, don't take God's prolonging as weakness in a way. That's his mercy. And not only that, you're looking at it from your standpoint, I am coming quickly, but from God's standpoint, yeah, from you, it's 2,000 years. That's a long time. And we might live 100, if that. But from God's perspective, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as a day. And Jesus was also quoted in Matthew's gospel concerning this, about his coming. So let's, let's go to Matthew's gospel. Let's go to Matthew 16. Again, we're looking at the phrase when he's saying, I am coming quickly. In Matthew 16, we'll pick it up in verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come, or komai, in the glory of his Father and with his angels, and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly, truly, I say to you, there are some of you, some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming, or komai, in his kingdom. Now, there's a lot of nuggets, nuggets of truth in this passage, but let me call out some. Jesus will come in the glory of his Father. Jesus will come with his angels. Then Brownie points, whose angels are they? Remember? The all, the angelic hosts, the good angels, the fallen angels, the entire legion of angels. Whose are they? The Father's. They're the Father's angels. And the Father has given all authority in heaven and on earth and has given it to his Son. So now all the angels are subject to the Son, but they're the Father's angels still. But when Jesus comes in the glory of his Father, he's coming with his Father's angels. Jesus will then repay each man according to his deeds. I'm telling you, this is precisely how it plays out in Revelation. I do want to make a conjecture here. You know, as, as we're learning together, and I've mentioned this before, I'm learning with you. I'm trying to be a blank slate because as as, I don't want to not be teachable because I think I know it all. And I can tell you that I'm getting corrected time and time again. And if someone doesn't think, thinks they know it all and aren't, aren't being corrected, that's a red flag. So if you come to someone and it's like, hey, you might want to rethink this like, what are you talking about? I know it. Really? Well, what did the, how about the heart of the Apostle Paul? He goes, not that I have attained it. The Apostle Paul, who's given the great insight and mysteries of everything. I mean, if anyone was given grace, and even he was even taken, and he talked to himself in the third person, and he was taken to heaven, and he, was, he saw things inexpressible that you can't even put into words, and he comes back, and he goes, I'm not even allowed to tell it, and, a, and, and to keep me humble, a thorn stake was given at my side. And he goes, not that I have attained it, but I press on. 
Do you think the Apostle Paul continued to grow in the truth? Even as the great Apostle Paul? Yes. And I'm telling us, we're believers. We're continuing to grow together. So here's one of those, like, wow, correction for me. And some of you might have been there, but I want to point us to verse 28. When he says, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming, Erkomai, in his kingdom. Before we had any disciplines, before our rules of engagement was being followed, how many of us read this passage and understood it to mean that some of the disciples that are there won't taste death until they see the Son of Man enter into his kingdom, and meaning that's the transfiguration. Because when you, after Matthew 16, then the transfiguration account is in Matthew 17. So he said it here in Matthew 16. Matthew 17 is a transfiguration. How many of us thought when he said, none of us, that there, there's some of you standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming, Erkomai, in his kingdom, and thought that he was talking about some of them are going to see the transfiguration. Come raise your hand. Okay, good. The ascension? Okay. Okay, whether it's the ascension, you know, Ed, like myself, I thought it was a transfiguration because it flowed. Well, none of those are correct. Here's why. First, we're going to go to Mark's parallel account of this same exact account. Let's read Mark's account. In Mark's parallel account, he tells us who the sum of those who are standing here were. So in Matthew's account, it only mentions the disciples. But when you take Mark's account, verse 34, and he says, And he summoned the crowd with his disciples. And he said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So Matthew's account only mentions the disciples. But the same parallel account of Mark, he gives us a little more detail. He says the crowd with his disciples. So it wasn't just the disciples. So when Jesus said in Matthew 16, 28, truly, truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming, Erkomai in his kingdom. Jesus was claiming that there were some there who won't taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So this would mean the disciples and the crowd. Folks, this is prophecy. This is an end times prophecy. And how do we know that? Remember, We're not going to add or take away from Scripture. We're not going to take Scripture out of context. We're going to interpret Scripture with a literal fulfillment. And we're not going to just over-spiritualize Scripture. So when Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you that there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man, Erkomai, in His kingdom. You remember what we learned in our last study? When we learn that when Jesus was going from town to town and there were some of them asking him questions and he says, you know, truly, truly, I say to you that you will be left out of the kingdom. And he goes, and you're going to be knocking and he's going to tell them, I don't know you, but they're going to claim, but you were teaching in our streets. We're talking about his early earthly ministry when he did his three and a half year ministry. These people are going to be knocking at the kingdom door and they're going to see Abraham and the patriarchs and his descendants reclining at his table. And he's like, let us in. He goes, we even ate with you. We shared a meal with you. And he says, away from me. I never knew you. We didn't 
take away from that, that conversation will happen in the future. So with that, when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you that some of those who are standing here will not taste death until they see the, the Son of Man coming, Erkomai, in his kingdom. Well, let me ask this question. Has Jesus entered his kingdom yet? But, it, but isn't our heart kind of a kingdom? But isn't the, the kingdom within you? It doesn't come with observation, or here it is, there it is, but the kingdom of God is within you? That's true too. But let me ask you, has he taken his seat? on the throne of David in his kingdom as foretold in the Old Testament? No. So here, the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, hasn't entered into his kingdom yet. But what he says here, you know, I'm going to tell us, he says exactly what he means. He's saying that there are some of those who are standing there, so there's the disciples, and imagine a sea of crowd of people, who knows how many there were, and he's saying there's some of you standing here who are not going to taste death until you see me the Son of Man entering into his kingdom. Now, catch this. When will that take place? What needs to happen for that, to them for this prophecy to be fulfilled? First of all, where, when is it going to take place? At the end of the age. And that was the disciples' question. What's going to be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? At the end of this age as we know it and the beginning of the age that is to come. So, he's not going to come into his kingdom He's not going to come into his kingdom until the end of the age. So what needs to happen to those people that were standing there? And he's saying, surely, surely, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see with their own eyes the Son of Man entering into his kingdom. What, will ha- what has to happen to them? They need to be raised. Amen. This is prophecy. They need to be resurrected. So what does that tell us? There's going to be a resurrection before the kingdom. And they're going to be part of it. And guess what? Everybody will see him. There he is coming in the clouds and everybody will see him, even those who pierced him. Let it be so. Amen. That crowd's going to be raised too. So what death is being spoken of here? It's not the first death. Hmm. Does the scripture tell us about a second death? Yes. So it's not the first death he is talking about. It's the second one. Conjecture. So these are things that got corrected because I, I was guilty of over-spiritualizing the text. Oh yeah, look, he entered into his kingdom. There's Moses and Elijah. So they need to be raised before Jesus enters his, his kingdom and are judged. So now let's go to back verse 13 now. When Jesus said that he is coming quickly, he is coming in the glory of his Father with his Father's angels to render to every man according to what he has done. Now, there's a timing truth here. Jesus coming quickly in the glory of his Father and with his Father's angels to render to every man according to what he's done. There's a timing element to this. It cannot happen until the man of lawlessness is revealed and the abomination of desolation occurs. So I want to cross-reference 2 Thessalonians 2 for this one. What I'm getting at here, he's saying, I am coming quickly, but he can't come until other prophecies are fulfilled first. And that would be the man of lawlessness and the abomination of desolation. And Paul talks about this. So let, let's read 2 Thessalonians 2 for this. And Paul writes there, he goes, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming, the Erkomai, of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him, 
that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of Lord has come. He goes, let no one in any way deceive you. For it, now the day of the Lord, for it, our gathering with him will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And we learn in past studies, I think this is beyond the apostasy of the church. This is going to be the apostasy of the elect Jews embracing another God. But let's continue on in verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it, the day of the Lord, and us being gathering to him, will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. He goes, do you not remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things? And as you know, what restrains him now? So that in his time, he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his orkomai, his coming. That is, the one who is coming, um, who is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not, lo- they did not love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who do not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. So here's my case in point. When Jesus says, I am coming quickly, you need to take it, uh, other scriptures into consideration. He cannot come quickly before the Antichrist arrives on the scene. He can't. So now, with that, let me just take a pause here. Can the rapture happen before the Antichrist is revealed? No. Paul says, do, you know, do not be deceived as if the, the day of the Lord has already come, for it cannot come, and this would include our gathering to him. It can't, that, we can't be gathered to him until the man of lawlessness is revealed. There is the apostasy and the abomination of desolation when we take other scripture. So right there, there's a timing element here. We can't be gathered with our Lord before Antichrist. We've got to get that. So no matter what our end times view is, that's what Scripture gives us. It gives us a timing. We cannot be raptured today. Same thing. Same thing. Paul, he confirms this in his letters. Jesus is confirming it in his words and the rest of Scripture. And here's another case in point, because Paul says, uh, Paul says here, let me go back to verse 8, because Paul says, then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. So be, in order for Jesus to come, the Antichrist needs to be here so that the Antichrist can be slain with the breath of his mouth at his coming. He can't come until Antichrist is here. We, is it clear? So now let's go to back to verse 13 again. If we, or any, anyone we know, held a view that Jesus came quickly in the first century or came quickly somehow even through the judgments 
and, or what may happen to the church you know, in its existence, um, he didn't come. Did he come in the glory of his Father? Did he come with the glory of his angels? And did he render to every person according to what he's done, whether good or bad? Was the dead raised and you know, one group taken to be with him and the other group left here? No. So to no surprise, you know, he said that this is what our Lord said even at the end of Revelation. Let's go at the very end. Revelation 22. Behold, I am coming quickly. Now, I put in brackets here because I'm taking Scripture with Scripture. You can say, Behold, I am coming quickly in the glory of his Father with his Father's angels. And my reward is with me. Okay, here, there's another clue. When Jesus, when Jesus is coming quickly, his reward is with him. To render to every man according to what he has done, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And we'll, go to, we'll jump to verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. What does John say? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So we, we come across another truth. What's part of this? I am coming quickly. The angels will be involved in saving and administering justice. We got to get this. How do we know that this is, okay, now Jesus is now, he's saying, I'm coming, and let's say he's now here, or he is on his way to earth. Angels will be involved in saving and administering judgments. And this is all at the command of the glorified Son of Man who has authority over all angels, including the seven stars in his right hand that were representative of the seven angels over the seven churches, including the seven spirits who are before the Father's throne, and even the angels over death and Hades. The more and more we study Revelation, the more and more I'm convinced that when he writes to the messenger, to the agalos, in this case, let's say Philadelphia, he's putting in writing his warning and judgment against the angel over that church. And then when he comes in the glory of his father and with his angels, he will render to every person according to what he's done. But we also know that there's going to be a judgment of the angels when he comes as well, leading ultimately to Satan himself being thrown into the lake of fire. So when he says, I am coming quickly, we're not to understand this from man's vantage point, but from God's vantage point, from God's timeline, from prophecy. When Jesus returns as foretold, it'll be bodily, physically, it'll be quick, it'll be speedy, and it'll be swift. He's not going to waste any time rendering to each man according to what he's done. He's not going to waste time saving us. And he's not going to waste time judging people. It's going to be done in perfect speed. Now let's look at the second piece. Hold fast to what you have. And I don't want to get too much into this particular one, but I want to make a few comments. You see when Jesus says hold fast? Now he's talking to the faithful believers here in Philadelphia. He's saying hold fast. This affirms our will and the exercise of our will. This is a mystery. I'm not going to try to explain it. Our will plays an active role in our salvation. Our will is involved. And where our will needs to be is to hold fast. Our, will ma- our wills matter. I can tell you I was on one side of the fence before and held one particular view and I minimized the will. 
Because all glory to God, right? Hey, he foreknown, for those whom he foreknown, he predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. You know, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places for um, as God chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. All that. Like, it's all God. You know what I, what I, what I did to my will? I kicked it to the curb. No. Hold fast. Our wills matter. I'm not saying we earned our salvation in any way, shape, or form. But we play a part in our salvation. We got to get that as believers. And I said this before, that phrase, let go and let God. Heck no. Hold fast. Hold fast. We are called to repent and believe for the rest of our lives until we pass this life into the next. Our wills, our beliefs, our repentance, we don't let those things go until we pass on from this life to the next. And he says, what you have. He says, hold fast what you have. This is in the present tense. He goes, you have it. He's talking to the believers here. Let's, let's start with them, and then we'll see how it, it applies to all believers. What, what is this in context? And I gave us a hint. He said, because you have kept the word of my perseverance. And we, we covered this. What is my perseverance? What do we have? Okay, what does the, Phil- the Philadelphian believers call to hold on to? The message or the gospel. Remember, in Paul's gospel, Paul's gospel and perseverance, it's Jesus' gospel. It's Jesus' perseverance. Meaning, the gospel message is what they have. Jesus exhorted them. He's saying, hold fast to the gospel which they received. Would you be surprised if the Apostle Paul said this exact same thing? He, he gave the same exhortation to the believers in Corinth. And let's read that one. We're all probably familiar with this. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 2. He says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you also stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast. Jesus says, hold fast to that which you've received. And here Paul says, well, that's the gospel. And he's saying, but if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So is it possible for people to believe the gospel and not hold on to it? Yeah, it's possible. Because unless you believed in vain. So Jesus and Paul are saying the same thing. Believers are to believe the gospel they received in which we stand and by which we are saved if we hold fast to it. And if is a conditional clause. This affirms the active participation of our will in our salvation. That begs the question, what about those who believed the gospel, held it at one point in time, and then let it go? And I don't want to get too much into that. But if we learn the lessons of the parable of the sower and the seed and how there was seed is the word of God and it fell on four different surfaces and we know that in a couple of those surfaces there was some result or impact. There was some fruit. Was it the one with the thorns? There was some seed that fell among thorns that at first, you know, it sprung up at first but because it had no root it withered and died. You can say for that group, they heard the gospel and they received it. 
but because there's no root, they let it go. Now my question is, did they lose their salvation? No, they never they had a root. So it was superficial. I'm telling us, guys, there's going to be a lot of superficial professed Christians where Jesus will not receive them because they didn't hold fast to the gospel in which they received. So what I'm learning as we're going through this, man, like our, it's a big deal. The choices we make, the pursuits we pursue, our faith, it's all significant. And we're an active participation in the sanctification process. I'm a work in progress. You're a work in progress. What you and I have in common is we've held on and we believe the gospel. The scripture, the, the, the gospel as revealed in scripture, not the gospel that might be being circulated out there, but we believe that Jesus is the son of God and that he came to die for our sins and that he was buried according to the scripture, as Paul says, and the third day he rose again as according to the scriptures and that he ascended, glorified by the Father, and that he is returning. We believe that. And by believing in that, in turn, we are granted salvation. But we need to hold on to the gospel. So if there was anyone who didn't hold on to the gospel revealed in Scripture, without getting too much into it, they weren't saved. They were going through the motions. Now on to the last part, he says, and this is really the heart of our, or the title of our study, and that is so that no one will take your crown. So in context, because Jesus speaks of the synagogue of Satan, who says that they are Jews and are not but lie, when he says that so that no one will take your crown, and because we're keeping in mind the context, I was drawn to the eight woes of our Lord recorded in Matthew. So let me read that to us. We're all familiar with this. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves." Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated, you fools and blind men. Which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But these are things which should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we'd have not been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets, men's bones, 
and all uncleanness. And he also says of them, he says, fill up then the measure of the guilt of your, and these are the scribes and Pharisees, fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? So now with that, based on the context of this letter and the reference of Matthew, who do you think Jesus is speaking of here when he says, so that no one will take your crown? I, I, I serve this up to you guys. Come on. I even highlighted it in everything. I, I, yep, the scribes and Pharisees in context. Remember, there are Jews or there are those who claim to be Jews among them and are not but lie, and yet Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan. Didn't in his eight woes, he says, you know, woe to you, and one of those woes is, you know, you travel pretty much far, far distance, and you make a proselyte, and you make him a twice as much as the son of hell as you are, synagogue of Satan. So when I read this, so that no one will take your crown, I thought about like my family members, you know, or my coworkers, or, you know, someone... You know, in my relationships, oh, you might take my crown. See, we can misapply. No, this is narrow. Jesus warns them to be weary of the synagogue of Satan. So who's the synagogue of Satan? Scribes and Pharisees. I didn't get this. We did a study and I even titled it Synagogue of Satan. And I didn't connect it until now. The synagogue of Satan are led by scribes and Pharisees. And guess what the scribes and Pharisees want to do to Messianic Jews or anyone who is even entertaining Jesus as Messiah who wants to take your crown. You know, one time I came across this video and this, you know, this one person who was a Muslim, he took the Bible and he goes, the Bible is the word of God, right? Yeah. He goes, so there's no errors, right? Yeah. And he goes, well, how come here it says this? And then, uh, and then he cross-referenced another passage, and it says this. And the guy goes, oh, yeah. It looked like an apparent error. He was using the wrong version. <laughs> it wasn't any of the reputable versions from the you know, reputable translations. It was made up. But you know what he was trying to do to him? He said, you're a believer, right? You believe in God? Believe in Jesus? And the Bible is the word of God? Then there's no errors, right? You know what he tried to do there? Take his crown. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is warning. He's saying, hey, watch out for them. Now, there's other false religions. that We can take this and we can run with it. Jehovah Witness, Mormons. They'll be like, oh, yeah, are you sure the scripture says that? And question you. You know what they want to do? Whether it's intentional or not, they want to take your crown. But Jesus says, no, hold fast to the gospel revealed in scripture. So if there's any, whether whatever religion... If it doesn't align with the scripture, no, hold fast to the scripture, the gospel in scripture, not any other gospel. If you hold on to that, hold fast to what you have because there's a crown for you. And now let's look at, let's look at this crown and we'll, we're getting close to the end here. So crown is Stephanus. And Stephanus, it can, crown, Stephanus can mean an actual crown that you wear on your head it can even mean figurative, too. So the context is going to tell us. So I went ahead and took a look at Stephanus, and here's kind of a summary of it revealed in Scripture. You know, there's a Stephanus of thorns. So when Jesus was being mocked, scourged, and crucified, and they twisted there 
thorns, a crown of thorns. That's a Stephanus of thorns. They took whatever plant that was with you know, the spikes or whatever is on it, and they twist it in so that it's like a Stephanus so they can place it on his head. There's also a Stephanus of wreath. So Paul makes mention of this in 1 Corinthians 9, where victors wore this Stephanus or, or, or wreath that perish. So there was some games going on in Paul's day, and whoever would win would be crowned with a Stephanus, a crown of wreath. Paul called the Philippian and Thessalonian believers, he says, he calls them his joy and his Stephanus, his crown. There's a Stephanus of righteousness. Paul said there is laid up for him a Stephanus of righteousness on his way to being pea-headed. Oh, well, let's be real here. So let's just say we're all in line, me, all of us right now, and we're, gonna, we're about to be beheaded. We're waiting in line for our turn, okay? And we're going to say, wow, there lays before me a crown of righteousness. It's like, okay, am I next? Let me go. Come on. But Paul, on his way to being beheaded, he's like, yeah, he sees the guillotine or whatever. He goes, there lays before me a Stephanus of righteousness, which my Lord will give me. There's a Stephanus of life. James says, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive this Stephanus, the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And then last but not least, there is a Stephanus of glory. Peter said, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown, the unfading Stephanus of glory. Remember, we're, we're going with this. What is our promised crown? What is it? Well, I just looked at all of Scripture of crown. Which of these here fits our context best? Okay? Life. Is there more? What else? Righteousness. Glory. Good. Good, guys. Look at this. <laughs> you, guys, you guys did it. Because it obviously wasn't, we're not going to get a Stephanus of thorns. Just... Our Lord took that. That was his crowning moment in his humiliation. That's reserved for our Lord. We're not going to get a Stephanus of a wreath of an earthly Stephanus here that perishes, as Paul says. And although we could be like Paul's Stephanus, you know, we're going to be Paul's Stephanus. Do you know that? You know when Paul comes here? You like, you see, I mean, my head got put back pretty good for you and for our Lord. We're his Stephanus. So that won't be us. That's for him and others who have given their lives for the gospel. But what awaits, this is the promise, there's a crown of righteousness, a crown of life, and a crown of glory. And I do want to mention this, singular. Although these are three facets of it, it's all-encompassing. So I don't think we're going to get three crowns. It's all-encompassing. So when Jesus says, hold fast what you have, so that no one will take your crown in context. In context. It's reject Judaism in context. The synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. And he said, instead, hold fast to the gospel they received and by which they stand, lest they forfeit the Stephanus of righteousness, life, and glory. When? When he comes quickly. When? At the Lord's appearing. So let me ask us a question. Okay. Let's say someone started off 
let's just let's stick in the Jewish community. Let's, someone believed that Jesus was their Messiah. And then the Judaizers come. They're like, oh, no, no. It's not just faith alone. Works. And you need to uphold the law of Moses. You need to undergo you know, the observations, you have to, you know, the feasts, festivals, you name it. And let's say they, they joined them. Did they lose their salvation? But they started off believing, and then now they've accepted works. Let them read the Apostle Paul. This is what he dealt with all the time. And sometimes he's like, man, did my work go in vain? And he goes on to say, man, you know what? These Judaizers, they make me so sick. I wish they'd go all the way and emasculate themselves trying to push circumcision. So one who turns into Judaism, they didn't lose their salvation. You forfeit it. It's there. So for the Jews especially, it's like, hey, he came. But if you go embrace Judaism, you didn't lose salvation. You forfeited it. So in closing, to kind of sum it up. So what is our promised crown? It's a crown of righteousness, eternal life, and glory. Who is this crown promised to? It's not just the Philadelphian believers, but it's all believers. How do we know that? When we get to the next verse, he who overcomes. It's not just limited to the recipients of this letter. This promised crown applies to all believers. How do we keep hold of that crown? Hey, I want that. I want to be crowned in righteousness, crowned with eternal life, crowned with glory. How do I keep hold of that? Because our, our, will, our wills are part of this process. By accepting and believing the gospel we have received and by which we stand until the very end of our life at all costs. Now this is very instructive for especially believers even now that are being persecuted for their faith. This message, it transcends even the small church in Philadelphia. The call is the same. All believers in Jesus Christ, you accept and believe the gospel of Scripture. The call is, hold fast to that which you have received and by which you stand until the very end of your life at all costs. Paul modeled that for us, didn't he? By him being a a minister and a preacher of the gospel, and now with Christianity, we've covered this at length, being outlawed and wrongly accused of the fire, and now suffering under persecution. For the Apostle Paul, it cost him his life. But he held fast to the gospel which he received from his Lord in which he's now delivering to us. So for all believers from there, whether you're a part of the persecution there, part of the persecution of church history, even at the hands of the Catholic Church, whether you're at persecution even beyond that in other parts of the world, you hold fast to that crown, the crown of righteousness, eternal life of glory that awaits for us at all costs. And last but not least, How can that crown be taken away from us? Well, the more technical terms, how can we forfeit that crown? By rejecting the gospel and embracing Judaism or any false religion. So let us heed the words of our Lord and hold fast the gospel of his perseverance so that that at the end of life, 
He will crown us with his righteousness, eternal life, and we share in his unfading glory. That's our promised crown, folks. I'll say this in reading this. I bet you Jesus can't wait to give it to us. But you know what? He's patient, man. And he is allowing things to unfold so that all who would believe would receive and all who would reject. I'm telling you, this is consistent. What did he say at the end of this letter? I'm going to jump in ahead. He goes, hey, if you're doing evil, he goes, keep doing evil. Keep doing it. Continue to live your life because it'll be all taken care of at the end. But he does offer freely to drink from the water of life, which is promised in this book, to those who would receive and believe. It's, this is our Lord's gospel. How do we know that? Who gave Paul? Who struck Paul on Damascus Road? And he says, who are you, Lord? He goes, it is Jesus who you're persecuting. The gospel that the apostle was given was given directly by the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Jesus' gospel. Yeshua's gospel. And Paul was faithful to give it and deliver it. And he even gave his head for it, literally. So that message that was given to Paul, that was given to the apostles, that was recorded for us in Scripture, this is our Lord's perseverance. We're to hold fast to that so that he can reward us at the end. Amen. Thank you for joining us today at Truth Matters Church. Such a beautiful promise we are given by our Lord Jesus Christ. Hold fast to the gospel. Stay firm in good times and bad, and he will give us the crown of glory. If you've enjoyed this expository study, consider joining us in person or online every Friday night. Our small group study is interactive and is followed by a Q&A session so we all have a chance to better digest the text. You can connect with us and find out more at truthmatterschurch.org. That's truthmatterschurch.org. Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church. 